Hi, I'm Stacy. I love chatting about how to find our callings, preferably cozied up with steaming beverages in a coffee shop. You can connect with me on social media at Stacy Summerow and subscribe to StacySummerow.com for a free discernment packet called How to Make the Right Choice. God's adventure awaits, my friend, and I am thrilled you're on the journey with me. Hey, y'all, thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode of the Called and Caffeinated podcast. My brother-in-law, when he was a tiny little boy, couldn't say the word beautiful. So instead of saying, it's a beautiful day, he would say, it's a Boomba day. (laughs) So it is a Boomba day here in Winchester. I tell you, spring is my favorite time of year, and I could just be a professional putterer in the garden. Um, I am going crazy this year. We got a peach tree, blueberry bushes, a grapevine, fig tree. (laughs) in addition to our usual herbs and all kinds of vegetables. So this is by far my most ambitious garden. And God willing, it'll also be the most prolific. But I have uh, Dr. Scott Hahn here for you. I have to say, I was really not anticipating that this was going to be a great interview, only because Dr. Hahn is one of those people who is so well-known. I was like, he cannot possibly live up to all the hype. That was me being cynical. And I have to say, Dr. Han is wonderful. He was so prepared for the interview. He brings so much enthusiasm and energy and wisdom. I think you're really, really, really going to love this episode. And I think it's just going to really gear you up for Holy Week and everything that's left of Lent. So before we get to that episode, I do want to thank our sponsor, which is the Christian Family Movement. CFM is a resource for families worldwide that helps people build authentic friendships and a network of support. Throughout COVID, I know many of us were deprived of one of our very basic human needs, which is meaningful human interaction. I know it was already hard enough to find community before. And when I speak to youth now, I really notice a real difference post-COVID versus pre-COVID. It's really quite alarming how much the last two years have stolen from us. So CFM, the Christian Family Movement, offers these time-tested program materials going back 70 years. So they have a lot of experience. And these program materials lead to purposeful discussion and encourage families to grow together in virtue. So they're intended to be carried out in a really fun, relaxed setting for families of all ages. I know here in Winchester, I consider my community to be my family's greatest asset in these crazy and turbulent times we're living in. And I'm very excited to recommend CFM to you as a way to help you keep yourselves and your family Catholic and strong. It's not complicated. The pillars of CFM are conversation, reflection, and action. So go to cfm.org to find a group near you. And if there isn't a group near you, you can totally start one with the support of CFM and the Holy Spirit, of course. There'll be a link in the show notes so you can easily check it out. I also want to invite you to join my Patreon community. I just love my Patreon supporters. We get together and have video chats twice a month. One of them is a rosary we pray together with a discussion and book club afterward. And the other one is a more informal chat. We have people join from all around the country and it is such a fabulous group. So this is another resource for you if you're looking for a community, because again, I know it's so hard to find you. So you can go to patreon.com slash called and caffeinated. There will be a link in the show notes as always. also helps support the work of this show and I'm so grateful and thankful to all my wonderful Patreon supporters. All right, let's get to the episode with Dr. Scott Hahn. Dr. Hahn, thank you so much for joining me here on Called and Caffeinated. Welcome. It's great to be with you, Stacy. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much. And you have a beautiful new book, Exquisite. 
out from Sophia Institute Press. And I just loved reading the first 50 pages or essays that you wrote about probably my least favorite time of year growing up, <laughs> but it's yes. becoming <laughs> becoming one of my new favorite times of year, which is Lent. And the first chapter was titled The Joy of Fasting, which was like, I actually legitimately LOL'd in real life. I laughed out loud. Um, <laughs> how can fasting possibly be joyful? Uh, and if we're not joyful, are we doing it wrong? Well, let me take a giant step back and contextualize this by providing a little background. Um, first of all, no, I don't enjoy fasting, but I enjoy what fasting produces in terms of the fruit that comes to me, to my family, to others as well. But the idea of connecting joy and fasting, that seems so odd, paradoxical, or just downright counterintuitive, is it has a twofold source. On the one hand, if you look at the rule of St. Benedict, the only time the term joy occurs is rather unexpectedly when he's describing Lent. He speaks of the joy of Lent. Well, why? Because it's not a joyful time, unless, of course, it is. 40 days of Lent prepares for 50 days of Easter. And there's a, there's a sense in which we have to really gain or at least grow in self-mastery in order to experience the idea of self-donation, self-giving. And that's really what Christ did in his 40 days of fasting and in the preparation for his own passion, death, and resurrection. And so he calls us not just to imitate him, but also to participate in him. And so you hear in the book of Hebrews, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and then enter into his glory. And this is a kind of mm, a preparation. And so my son just directed a musical at Catholic Central, Bye Bye Birdie. He was the assistant director, but had a whole, a whole lot of hands-on experience. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the practice, the rehearsals, all of those things, you know, lead to a, a, a difficult and challenging time of preparation. But it would flop apart from that. And so to enter into the joy of Easter really does require this sort of discipline. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it was decades ago that we learned about Nautilus, no pain, no gain. Well, in our tradition, there's no cross, there's no crown. And it's not just that he does it for us. He also does it in us and through us. The other thing I wanted to mention, too, the other source was doing a little bit of background research after my friend Charlie McKinney invited me to, to provide the essays that would accompany David Geiser's recipes so that people could fast and deny themselves, but still enjoy really fine dishes. Mm -hmm. I, I, I said to him, can I bring in the background story of Irma Rombauer, who is not well known, but the book that she wrote way back in 1931 is, it's called The Joy of Cooking. And the story that is, the well, the backstory for that is that Irma was a jet-setting, high-society, St. Louis, upper-crust kind of gal mm -hmm. who would host or be invited to a number of banquets along with her husband. But when the Great Depression hit, it hit home because her husband took his own life in 1930 and left her really impoverished as a widow in 31. Her adult children weren't able to help her. And so she took all of these mimeographed sheets of recipes that she had seen her friends use, that she had used herself, and compiled what became known as the joy of cooking. And this was a new experience. This was a breakthrough of sorts, because what the book ended up doing was taking the great recipes that only the elite 
in the high society of St. Louis and down to ordinary families who even in the 30s, in, in the midst of depression, learned that they could enjoy perhaps fewer meals, smaller meals, but they could really enjoy great recipes. And so it democratized this sort of elitist eating. And over the course of decades, it sold something over 18 million, nine editions. It was the inspiration of Julia Child. But I think of an analogy here that we usually associate austerity, rigor, discipline, penance, fasting with monasteries, you know, or mm -hmm. with convents or with hermits. And, you know, in the East with the... Uh, the practice that goes back to antiquity in terms of the monastic discipline. Well, you know, on the other side, in most of the West, Catholics live in great comfort. But at the same time, we've been experiencing something of a Catholic renewal, especially in Catholic family subcultures, you know, where you live in Winchester, where I live in Steubenville, so many homeschool families, you know, we could wait until once again, the authorities from on high flip the switch and impose the rigor, you know, that we hear about from the 40s and the 50s, where you went to these Catholic schools and you had to fast and all of that. Yeah. Since 1966, almost all of that has been relaxed for the majority of Catholic lay people mm -hmm. since Pope Paul VI issued penitentiary, which sort of relaxed the rigor of Lent and Advent. Yet at the same time, when you read it, it wasn't intended to do that. It was intended mm -hmm. to kind of internalize the values of penance that will lead to holiness and joy. But nobody took it that way. This was in the post-conciliar mm -hmm. period where if you have a loophole, you widen it so that trucks can drive through. And, you know, in the spirit of Vatican II, the ideal was, well, look, in the third world, there are people, many people, who don't eat meat on Monday through Thursday, so fasting for meat on Friday is not all that meaningful. Mm. And so we'll consign it to the regents and the bishops and all of that. But in the process, we backed into laxity. We backed into a loss of discipline. And we just kind of coasted through the late 60s and into the 70s until practically all of Western Catholicism was largely secularized through comfort and luxury and this sort of thing. And so now for 101 reasons, I would say more and more of us as Catholics, whether we're converts or cradle Catholics, are experiencing this uh, rediscovery of the traditions, the living traditions, the lost traditions that are not really lost. But in the process, I have friends, I suspect you do too, who call themselves rad trads. And in my experience, they often end up being more like mad trads. They're angry. And I <laughs> yeah. understand why. But, you know, the tradition, once you discover it, is meant to lead you to a sort of um, uh, a joy, mm -hmm. a, a gratitude, a sense that, wow, this is so much more than the sum of its human parts, that mm. the saints and the angels surround us. And so even if you're raising like two or three high school kids, as we were doing several years ago, you can, as a Catholic family, enter into Lent to prepare for Easter in a way that, okay, there will be bumps along the way, for sure. There'll be resistance, especially from the teenagers. But overall, what we found over the, the course of 20, 25, 30 years, we homeschooled for 26 years, that we really had an experience of momentum, moral momentum. I mean, there were ups and downs. There were, mm. there were bruises, you know, there were stops along the way. But now, you know, our, from our first, we have six kids. From our first three, we now have 21 grandkids. 
The fourth wow. child is now Father Jeremiah for the Steubenville Diocese. But all of them can point back to the pains and the challenges of giving up dessert, giving up soda pop, giving up TV, you know, giving up uh, all kind of cream in your coffee, giving up the Internet, Facebook and all of that. And they, they've internalized it. They now mm. own it for themselves. My oldest son, Michael, has seven kids. He's a professor of scripture at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg. And I would say, you know, he put up the biggest fight of all as a teenager. And now he has put <laughs> himself out. He, you know, his own lifestyle, his family's lifestyle is slightly more disciplined and penitential than our Han household ever was. And <laughs> thus far, has gone along with it, you know. And one last story. I just, I, fasting I <laughs> was a pain in the butt. And then about 20 some years ago, I won't go into any of the details, but we hit a crisis and it was really hard and there just didn't seem to be any way out. And so my spiritual director at the time suggested that I, I intensify my prayer. I try some fasting. And so I did. And I, I went several days and then some weeks without, um, without breakfast or lunch, but not without coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so my holy hours, my rosaries were in a certain sense weaker because I was just kind of exhausted. And yet they were also more intense because when you feel the weight of your own weakness, you also recognize the need for God's strength, for his grace, yes. for God to make up for all that I lack. And when you pretend you don't lack anything, that you're in control, mm -hmm. you know, you're only fooling yourself. You're not fooling your guardian angel or anybody else. <laughs> matters. And so we had a breakthrough in my own family as a result of that period. And we've had two or three other crises that I won't go into but we've had depression in my family line that goes back at least three or four generations, you know, and actually we have a milder case of it than I suppose my grandfather did who took his own life. Mm -hmm. But I've been attentive. I've been really keenly aware of the fact that it's a spiritual battle. On Kimberly's side of the family, nothing really like it. But on my side of the family, it came in spades. And so mm -hmm. fasting in Advent, preparing for Christmas, fasting in Lent, preparing for Easter, but fasting throughout the year as Christians have done for two millennia, especially Wednesdays and Fridays, you know, and it might be small things like, you know, no, no butter or no sugar in your coffee or no salt at the dinner or no extras mm. or no seconds or taking the smaller portion, these minor mortifications that don't really add up to much, certainly can't really become any reason for bragging or spiritual pride they're just too small to be that significant yeah. and yet i find these little crosses over time have led to larger graces and that the whole family has been the beneficiary and i suspect others too absolutely yeah that was so beautifully explained thank you for all those great stories as you were talking i was thinking um about the diary of saint faustina which i am slowly working my way through i just read a little bit every day as i right before i pray um because she's she's just amazing and i was just thinking about her uh going through so much suffering like jesus would like give her suffering for souls basically to save souls and so she would take it on just as you know jesus did and it's so beautiful to see that on this other side of that jesus will always say you're going to suffer but don't be afraid and i think when we are like you were saying when we're so removed from suffering it doesn't give god any room to really show us his power and to show us that on the other side of that suffering is peace and if we lean into it and 
the way, you know, if we lean on him through it, then what's really waiting for us is not more suffering or a black hole of despair. (laughs) But if we do it right, it really is uh, peace. And like you said, that kind of just the the joy of self-mastery as well. Can we call it that? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Which is a pretty good lead-in for our next question. Um, you quoted a book by Dag Tesore. Did I say that correctly? Okay. Yep, you did. Yep, Dag Tesore's book called Fasting, uh, and a, a little gem of a book. And you quoted, uh, God commanded sacrifices to see if man believed in him or if he were capable of doing something that makes sense only if God exists. So, would you say that based on that quote, it's accurate to say that fasting, in a sense, kind of proves our faith to God? Yeah, it proves our faith, but it also strengthens our hope because, mm. you know, hope is what we need to obtain something that is difficult. And so it's arduous. And so what is it that's driving our faith and our hope? Ultimately, it's love. But what is it that perfects love? What is it that proves the genuineness of love? Well, it's not words only, I love you. It's not just the warm, fuzzy feelings that come along with those words or not, Mm -hmm. uh, you really can see that on the one hand, love without sacrifice can be warm, fuzzy feelings and nothing more. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, pain without love can just kind of lead to darkness and despair. Mm -hmm. In becoming Catholic like 36 years ago, I discovered this mystery of suffering, the mystery of redemptive suffering, which really is the science of the saints. I mean, that's really what saints are. They're the ones who graduated from the school of suffering. And if there are many souls in hell, I think they would all testify to the fact that it doesn't pay to drop out of that particular school because the mortality rate is 100%. We're all going to end up having to suffer and die. And as you just mentioned a minute ago, Stacy, lean into it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when I was a, a college kid one summer, I went rock repelling near Uniontown, Pennsylvania, and my friend was a great repeller. Uh, but he said the hardest thing, in this case, it's not to lean into it, it's to lean out. Because, you know, you've got the rope, but if you're leaning out, you're just going to feel like you're going to mm-hmm. fall. And then they said, just let go and lean out. And when I did, you grab hold. And then all of a sudden, you find this freedom that comes from letting go. Mm. You know, the 12-step program involves that line, let go and let God. And I find that this is the case, that, you know, Jesus, it's not how much he suffered that saves us. It's how much he loved that saves us. But the suffering is what trans. The love is what transforms the the suffering into sacrifice, mm. you know. And so the pain is what transforms the passion of Christ into well, from the loss of life to the gift of life. Yeah. And as Protestants, we always thought that was done by Jesus as our substitute. Mm-hmm. But as Catholics, you realize no, He does it as our representative. He wants to represent His sacrifice not only in the Mass. He wants to represent His life, His love and also his suffering and death in us. As Paul states so eloquently in the second half of Romans 8, you know, we'll be heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we be glorified with him. And so, leaning into this through fasting, you know, I I also found this statement too, that fasting is what magnifies the power of prayer by coupling sacrifice with this physical act of faith. Everybody knows that, you know, we need to be spiritual. But what the Catholic Church is out to teach us is that there's a physical side of being spiritual that has not been dissolved since the Incarnation. Mm. It's been taken to the heights by the Incarnation. I mean, prior to the coming of Christ, 
Judaism practiced fasting. In fact, you can even find the Greek philosopher and founder of medicine, Hippocrates, speaking of fasting as being the great interior medicine. And Aristotle talking about how it's indispensable to virtue, self-mastery through self-denial. And so you find it also in Ramadan for Muslims. You find it in Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, when the king hears the preaching of Jonah, the least likely royalty to repent. He fasts and prays and brings down the mercy of God to spare the city and all of that. There are so many lessons for us to learn, not only as Catholics within the church, but also Americans in an increasingly secularized society. Mm. But the idea that there is a physical side to being spiritual, that there's also a rhythm of fasting, just like there's a rhythm in life in terms of the four seasons, you know, uh, springtime has come and we're getting ready for Easter. But the rhythm of the church is set up by the liturgical calendar. And the more we internalize it, the more we resist the idea of treating it as though it's alien, it's external, it's imposed upon us. You know, I remember reading what um, Rabbi Raphael Samson Hirsch said back in the 19th century. He's considered by Orthodox Jews to be the founder of modern Orthodox Judaism. And he was asked, you know, why don't you Jews have a, uh, a catechism? He said, our calendar is our catechism. And of course, we have a catechism, and I'm glad we do, but there's a sense in which one hand washes the other, that when we live the creed, when we study the catechism, but we do so against the background of the rhythm of the liturgical year, Christ enters us, we enter into his life, you know, whether it's his birth at Christmas, or whether it's the 40 days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness, or whether it is the joy of the resurrection that follows I just think that there is a, a divine genius hidden like leaven that we are, you know, called upon to live. And if somebody said, well, explain it to me, make me understand, and then I'll do it, it wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. It's really another example of where obedience leads to understanding. And if we obey from the heart, we're going to realize that this is not something that humans invented. This really is something that comes from on high from someone who knows us better than we know ourselves. Mm -hmm. He loves us more than we love ourselves. And he legislates what he knows will fulfill us even when it hurts, especially mm -hmm. when it hurts. Absolutely. And I just think that this is the path, not only to holiness, but there's a sense in which it's sanctified common sense. I mean, mm -hmm. it's true in the work world. It's true in sports, you know, no pain, no gain in every area of life. Why wouldn't it apply in becoming saints? Yeah, absolutely. It's getting me fired up for Holy Week. Because <laughs> usually this is the point in Lent where I'm like, oh, I'm tired of this. <laughs> so this will be a, I think this is a sprint. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, I was interviewing Father Gregory Pine the other day. You were talking about hope, you know, and Father Gregory is so funny and he's a genius. He's like, yeah, when I was a kid, I used to tell my dad, like, dad, Jesus is going to come soon. I can't clean my room. I would be lacking hope in the eschatological reality if I clean my room because Jesus is going to come. <laughs> he's like, I, I, we shouldn't do it. <laughs> no, he was, uh, he's hilarious. Um, he is wise. Yeah. So wise. Yes. Oh my goodness. He wrote a beautiful book about prudence. And I think his interview might be out by the time I release yours. So I will be sure to link to that in the show notes. Um, yeah, he's, he's fantastic. But yeah, thank you for that explanation. I just, I love, um, the energy behind everything that you say, you know, and 
there's there's a sense of of like you were saying the liturgical calendar being so much bigger than we are and we can insert ourselves into it and learn from it and there's this idea of sort of collectively you know building up the kingdom of god um as you were quoting saint paul earlier so i know that like fasting i've always thought of as an individual practice but it really is can be a collective practice how do you how do you apply that how do you think of it as a collective thing well you know on the one hand it should be personal and individual mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand especially in family life it's one of those things where if you've given up desserts but they haven't there's an incongruity you mm -hmm. know and so you have to be careful as saint jose maria said don't let your mortifications mortify others you know <laughs> if you're going to do certain minor mortifications that nobody is going to be hurt by that's fine but if you're going to be giving up other things that people have not given up you're going to have to have a powwow and so yes. we generally have had that for many many years you know since becoming a catholic 36 years ago back in 86 kimberly became a catholic in 1990 mm -hmm. up until 90 i was doing it all alone i mean i would take our kids to mass they were learning the ropes as it were but they were still in the single digits they were young mm -hmm. when kimberly came into the church she really came on board and i remember the decision to become a catholic happened when she drove out from joliet to steubenville on ash wednesday asking our lord what should I give up for Lent this year? You know, for the first time. And yeah. she was thinking about chocolate and soda pop or desserts or, you know, seconds. And then as she made these decisions, she realized that she could almost sense God the Father talking to her heart. And she said, I heard him say, I want you to give up. I want you to give yeah. yourself to me in a whole new way that this Lent really can be a complete change of life for you, for your marriage, for your family. I was out on the West Coast when she called, when I called her and she told me that there were two sets of eyes that were not dry. Wow. And, I mean, I was so moved by this sense that she said, it wasn't you pressuring me to become a Catholic, it was God, the Father calling me home, but also inviting me to really allow this to permeate our home as well. Mm -hmm. And so over the years, you know, uh, we've had close friends who've given up smoking or alcohol. You know, at times, I think the best thing might be to give up uh, Twitter you know, or Instagram or mm -hmm. Facebook or the things that become subtle addictions yes. uh, that give us whatever the dopamine rush really is, you know. But I, I think also positively, it ought to be more time for reading scripture, uh, more time before the Blessed Sacrament, but also more time before a Blessed Sacrament that I call Kimberly. So we've been having these Lenten date nights, you know, I don't wow. recommend the TV series Castle, you know, I'm just, but we binge on Castle like once a night. And it's just the way we end the day because mm. we're so similar to Beckett and Rick Castle, you know, and, and, and what we want to do is to build up not only the church as the family of God, but also the domestic church. Mm. And we still have students living with us. And what we find is that these little minor mortifications, again, the rhythm of fasting and feasting, the physical side of being spiritual together, you know, takes it from the realm of theory that the family is mm -hmm. the ecclesia domestica. And it makes it so obvious. You wonder why didn't everybody always know that, you know, mm. and we're not the holy family far, far from it, you know, but I would also say that this is given, this gives us the opportunity 
to go to mass more frequently, but also confession. It's a penitential season. And so the requirement is to go to confession before, you know, the Easter obligation, all of that. But, um, you know, I, because I'm an Opus Dei, it's really a custom for us to go weekly. And uh, I've always taught my kids that I do. They don't know what I confess, uh, but they never complain that I go too frequently. And I've never complained <laughs> that they go too frequently. But I, I just think entering into this awareness that God hates sin precisely because he loves us so much and he sees the self-destructive effects of sin. Mm -hmm. And he also sees how subtle things are that lead us to sin long before we've given consent to sin. We've just become lax. We've led up in certain areas. And so this gives us the opportunity to not only set Lenten resolutions in place by Ash Wednesday over the first, second, or third week. Mm -hmm. But I would say, echoing something that you were just implying a minute ago, Stacy, that about halfway through Lent, we need Laetare, we need joy, we need to kind of renew our own resolutions and renew our own awareness that, God, this is lasting longer, this is harder, because I am weaker than mm -hmm. I realized. And so, help me to kind of double back, you know, help me to renew the energy that I'm pouring out because, uh, you know, it's easy to get grouchy by the time you get to that yeah. halfway. Yeah. Absolutely. So when you reach that point, do you give yourself a day off or do you like do something intentional prayer wise extra to really double down on it? Or is it more just like an awareness? How, how does that actually look for you? I mean, personally, what I do is I usually give up on one thing I, and I, and I, I might have the one thing, you know, so I might yes. have an evening snack where I've been trying to go without, you know, mm -hmm. and then once I realize I've had it and it didn't, it didn't transform me, then I realized, <laughs> okay, I'm grateful yes. that I can go back and go without, you know, yes. and likewise, no cream in my coffee or, you know, uh, no dessert, the, the tiny little things. Mm -hmm. But the one thing I really want to encourage, and that is, for many years, I was always intent upon doing a holy hour. And then life just got too busy. And I realized early on, it could just be intrusive, or uh, it could really upset family life at night, especially if that's when I was going off. Yeah. So again, with my spiritual director's insight and encouragement, you know, time with Kimberly helping get the kids down or whatever, just hearing about her day. She's a sacrament too, like the mm. Eucharist, not the same, but still important for me. But I would say renewing my resolution to spend time before our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament, that is to me the highlight of Lent. And so last week I had to go without. And when mm. I did, you know, I apologized, but it wasn't something like a sin but I missed them and I felt that. And so when I've gone back, it's like, uh, you know, I want to sustain this all throughout Lent, but I also want to get back to this being a daily discipline as much as it fits into my family life. Mm, yes. I totally resonated with you. I laughed so hard when you said that like you had a snack at night and it didn't transform you because these <laughs> things, they become so built up in our minds. Like we just had the solemnity, solemnity of, or the feast of St. Joseph. And then we have the solemnity of the Annunciation coming up. And I was like, okay, taking a day off of Lent. And then Sunday, you know, came around and I was like, well, you know, having the thing, like the, it wasn't as great as I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> it, just the thing itself the feast day was great but the you know just like this thing i'd been longing for it's like we build it up in our minds and it's really good to just realize like oh actually 
I'm still empty even when I have that, unless I actually have God. <laughs> it's a reality check. You know, we we tend yeah. to absolutize the relative goods, yes. and then inadvertently we relativize the absolute goods of supernatural life. And again, it isn't as though he's just asking us to become hermits. A little bit goes a long way, mm -hmm. and a little bit of love makes that burden seem a lot lighter. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and to kind of add to what you were saying, which was also good, uh, Sister Miriam James Heidland, I got to interview her recently about um, her book, Restore. And she said something that just has really stuck with me. She said, fast so that you can feast on something else, which sounds a bit like what you're saying with Kimberly, where you you two are feasting together, but you're but that's holy too, because she is a sacrament for you as well. So you're not just you know, taking away, taking away, but you're actually taking away in order that you might have something more, which I love. And my husband and I have just kind of introduced, um, we're trying to get a little bit of structure. We have three very little ones, five, four, just turn five, just turn four and uh, one. <laughs> Woo. So we're trying to get a little bit of structure in our day. And we decided, you know, before the kids go to bed for one hour, we're just going to have a family hour where we play. Um, they're just getting old enough to play board games. We're going to sing and play music together. We're going to have, we're going to feast on each other's company and we're really going to do it very intentionally, which is so life-giving. And when you kind of just set that intention, it's so, it's so good. So we don't do home projects. We try to get the dishes done beforehand and we just kind of have that hour together. Um, and it's so fun and it, it's so fulfilling. You start to learn, okay, I've taken away, you know, social media. I've just kind of voluntarily been doing a lot of breaks from that. And it's like, wow, I really actually really love just spending time with my family. It's so great. That's a wonderful. It reminds yeah. me too that that Lent was often the occasion for us trying new things. You know, mm. one Lent we we started reading Narnia, and when Lent was done, we kept on going through the Chronicles, and then we circled back. And yeah. I was down visiting my oldest son's family, and he's working through the trilogy uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien. Yes, and I was just enthralled. You know, and sometimes we would do the. Well, we started off when the kids were really young doing an after-dinner decade, and then that grew into the family rosary. Mm. But so often, Advent and Lent were the times that we would gather and be more intentional about family prayer. Mm. And we would use Magnificat and maybe do morning prayer mm. and or evening prayer. And I, I would just say that uh, those things are just really what makes Lent special. And if we think of it strictly in terms of the things that we're saying no to, uh, it just comes out on the darker side. Mm -hmm. But if we recognize that, no, these are going to afford us opportunities to spend more time together, to spend more time Absolutely. before the Blessed Sacrament, and just to enter into the joy of Lent, you know, it mm -hmm. becomes more than religious rhetoric. It really is a lived reality. Yes, absolutely. I think it's, you start to realize how like truly not fun television is sometimes when you have too much of it, really. And my, I know my siblings and I, there was one one time when I was home from college and I'm the oldest of a number of siblings and I read them The Hobbit aloud and I tried to do a different voice for each of the 13 dwarves. And they still talk about that. Like it was the greatest thing that they have ever, because then of course I would start doing the Gollum voice or Gandalf voice and it's supposed to be Bilbo or whatever. And I didn't realize it till halfway through the sentence and they would just laugh. It was just like, was those silly things that just stay in your mind that are, they really like, um, you look back on them and those are the happiest moments that you don't necessarily think as you're moving through them. But the moments when you watch, you know, TV, like you said, it's a quality time thing with you and Kimberly, but if you just do too much of it, it's just, it's so unsatisfying. It just, especially your life just slips TV. away. Yeah. Yes, Stacey, especially yeah. TV and the internet, you know, yeah. our culture 
the political situation, you know, we have a situation where our kids are taking away so many bad memories. Yes. What we've got to do is counteract that by making as many good memories as possible. Yes. And I would say the seasons of the year, just like the seasons of life, are all about making memories mm. and making them so that we can share them later on, but not just reminiscing in some kind of nostalgia, but so that we're encouraged to continue on making more and more vacations, mm. holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, all of these sorts of things. You know, we ought to punctuate family life by celebrating those things. Absolutely. Hence the liturgical calendar. It's all coming full circle because <laughs> there's so many feast days built right in. Every day is somebody's feast day. Um, and maybe you shouldn't indulge in dessert every single day, but <laughs> there's a lot you can do. So many different rich traditions that that um, come through the liturgical calendar. Um, so I know that I need to let you go very soon, but there's one question I wanted to dip into really quick. Um, and that come, that's for people like myself and many other people in my audience who may have suffered from self-image issues in the past. And, you know, dieting slash fasting is kind of just a very mixed up, you know, um, process in their heads. Like I know, I used to kind of secretly look forward to Lent as my diet, you know, and then even afterwards, the thought of depriving myself tapped into all of those times when I would, you know, deprive myself to an extreme that it really was hard to figure it out, you know, this relationship between true spiritual fasting and kind of a more worldly, you know, dieting. Um, and actually, somebody just reached out to me the other day and uh, had that exact question. So, I want to make sure I got to it. So, with whatever time we have left, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that. This is a great question. It's a hard one. There's no easy answer. And I would say one size will not fit all. Mm -hmm. And over the course of raising our six kids, you know, it's one year at a time, one kid at a time. And we had issues not unrelated to what you have just mm -hmm. mentioned. And so, uh, what I would say is prayer and fasting for each of the kids and a great sensitivity when it comes to spending time with those who happen to be struggling. Uh, I, I, I won't go into the details, but I tell you, the most cherished memories are the ones that I spent hours and hours living in a cave, is how we put it, talking through the darkness of the depression and all of the things that went with it. And uh, I could tear up right now thinking about the bond of love, the friendship, and the memories that we share because of that. But conversely, I would also say that um, uh, if people do have that weakness and this taps into it, then I would say avoid that sort of thing and balance it out with friendship, spending time with family members, spending time doing the things that you enjoy, fasting a little bit, but fasting from the things that probably attach more like Instagram or like Facebook yes. or other matters that are, you know, but those kinds of eating disorders, those other things that people struggle with, they have got to be recognized yes. and a certain healthy and holy realism needs to counterbalance a tendency that would be, you know, obviously imbalanced. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll, I'll leave it at that and allow our, 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 our viewers to take away whatever practical conclusions they might have. But uh, mm -hmm. this thing has not gone away. And I'm aware of the fact that many people, when it comes to food, really do need to learn how to feast and fast, but in a way that, you know, 
you're back into integrity and balance. And so, uh, yes. yeah, I would also say this, that spiritual direction and counseling will yes. fit in well also. Yes. I was going to add that too. Please, you know, if your body is sick, you go to a doctor. If you have, you know, a problem in your um, mental health, please go to a counselor as well. I would also just add on to everything you said, which was great that, um, uh, like like we established, you know, fasting on one thing so that you can feast on something else. I would say feast on the word of God and find out what he thinks about you through scripture, which really was, I mean, it took years for me to truly unspin all of these messed up messages in my head, but learning to read scripture and take it very personally um, is so, was so healing. Uh, Song of Songs is wonderful. The Psalms are incredible. And just to learn that God loves humanity and God doesn't just love you in a general sense, but your body that he created is so good. And it's not something to be punished, but something to be honored and respected and uh, taken care of and cared for. So yeah, that would just be my little two cents, but Dr. Han, thank you so much for beautiful interview. I'm so excited to put this out in the world. What a treasure. You're welcome. But I mean, 10,000 thanks to you, not only for the opportunity to have the conversation, but for that great conclusion, focusing on the word of God. Talk about the bread of life, the living water. The Cappadocians spoke of it as being the wine of God's word that leaves us in a state of sober intoxication, you know, more sober than sobriety itself, but more. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. I love that. Whatever. A little bit more every day to balance the little bit less that you have agreed to through Lent. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So good. Thank you so much. And, you know, you are such a, I know so many people admire your work and I hope you hear this often, but you, you are a really extraordinary light to many, many people. So thank you for being here today. You're most welcome and keep up the great work, Stacey. May God bless you, John, and the whole family. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Wasn't he wonderful? What a gift to this world, Dr. Han is. Before you go, I invite you to check out the True North Discernment course. It is the course that I wish I had when I was making many of my big life choices in my 20s. And I also still use the principles in the course when my husband and I make decisions today as a married couple. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes to True North. It's a five module self-paced course. It comes with complimentary coaching from me. And it also comes with a beautiful package of 43 talks from the God's Adventure Awaits Summit, which is all about the art of discernment. So I invite you to check it out if you feel a little lost and you feel like you need some support on making those life choices, big or small. Stay caffeinated, my friends, because you are called to great things. And I can't wait to see you again for coffee very soon. God bless.